0: Last Thursday, a singular video came out of a man behind bars. He was on a TV screen addressing some court officers via a video connection, a rare sign of life from the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. (laughs) (laughs) Navalny had been serving a decades-long prison sentence in a grueling penal colony above the Arctic Circle after Putin's regime charged him with extremism and embezzlement. The New Yorker's Joshua Yaffa watched that video of Navalny, and the man he saw looked surprisingly good given the circumstances.
1: Full of life, full of humor, cracking jokes, even managed to get a smile out of the judge presiding in the case. And he didn't seem like someone who was deathly ill or in an acute um, health spiral at all, which, of course, raises all sorts of questions, the obvious ones, about what actually happened to Navalny on February 16th in this prison colony. What happened
0: is that Friday morning, Navalny was pronounced dead by Russian authorities. The official story is that he fell ill suddenly while taking a walk and collapsed and efforts to resuscitate him were unsuccessful. But Joshua says, there's no way to know what really happened.
1: Either Navalny was driven to his death through banal sadism and cruelty that mounted over time, or he was killed outright in a fashion that we may never truly learn the details of, But either way, the Russian state is wholly responsible uh, for what's happened to Navalny. As I heard repeated among a lot of Russian friends, they were killing Navalny and then they killed him.
0: Now, when the news broke, did we see Navalny's supporters take to the streets?
1: No, though there were and are some impromptu memorials in cities across Russia. There are people bringing flowers, lighting candles in Moscow. But we have to remember what this moment is like inside Russia in terms of political and civic freedoms, or rather the total lack thereof. I saw footage, for example, of a brave young woman from the city of Murmansk in northern Russia uh, near the Arctic Circle who who went out with a sign in anguish over Navalny's death, arrested within seconds. And so in this climate, the appetite for protest uh, has, has understandably shrunken to almost zero. And, and anyone in Russia who is a Navalny supporter, whether not even so much publicly, it's not possible to really be a public Navalny supporter, even privately, understands these calculations very well.
0: Today on this show... With Russia's most prominent opposition leader gone, what's left behind? I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. I asked Joshua Yaffa to tell me about how Alexei Navalny became a public figure in Russia
1: in the first place. Well, Navalny emerged onto the scene more than a decade ago, first as an anti-corruption activist, someone who started out on the internet, where he published his own one-man investigations into corruption in Russian state corporations and did so with detail, and this launched very quickly, a political career. He was among the leading, if not the leading figures in a short-lived season of protest in 2011 and 2012 that sprung up around fraudulent parliamentary elections and Putin's return to the presidency in the spring of 2012. And, And from that moment on, he was clearly the most charismatic, popular forceful, engaging figure in Russia's political opposition. Since we do not recognize the election, we will not recognize the election results. We are quite clear that on March 5th, Putin will declare himself the president of Russia. In fact, he would call himself a czar and an emperor. We will not accept this, and we will continue to demand political reforms, new parliamentary elections… Not loved by everyone, but nearly everyone, I spoke to over those years when I lived in Moscow, who consider themselves sympathetic to opposition views, consider themselves a liberal, opposed to the Putin system. Nearly everyone I spoke to in those days admired uh, his courage, admired his commitment. He was genuine. He was open. He was honest. His message resonated not just with urban elites in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but people across the Ural Mountains, Siberia, the Far East. And that really left him, at the time of his poisoning and then imprisonment, a singular figure in Russian politics where there were so few credible, charismatic leaders of any kind, certainly uh, among the opposition.
0: 2011 was a big year for Navalny. He established the Foundation for Fighting Corruption, which served as a platform in his activism. But after leading those nationwide protests around Putin's return to power, Navalny was charged with embezzlement in 2012.
1: Almost instantaneously, the Kremlin started going after him, among other ways, by coming up with these clearly politically motivated, largely fictional, or at least greatly exaggerated trials having to do with fraud, embezzlement, and so on. I think the initial logic was to try and paint Navalny in the eyes of the otherwise uninformed public, people who maybe just saw Navalny's name here and there, watched the news every now and then, didn't know exactly who he was. But if they could get Navalny convicted of fraud, embezzlement, and other financial crimes, then it was very easy to paint him, at least in state media and other propaganda sources, as the the fraudster con man. Navalny is trying to trick you by talking about corruption in state institutions when really he's the real corrupt one. Uh, It was a bit of pot calling the kettle black, very transparent, may have worked for some Russians who weren't paying close attention to politics or Navalny at the time, but there's no indication that those were serious trials, anything beyond uh, politically motivated smear campaigns.
0: Over the years, he did run for public office. He ran to be the mayor of Moscow in 2013, and he ran for president in 2018. Obviously, he didn't win. So what was he trying to achieve by participating in the political process, even as he believed it was rigged?
1: I actually interviewed Navalny. It was one of the handful of times I spoke to him over my decade living and reporting in in Moscow. And he talked about that campaign as a process in which he wanted... His supporters, his campaign staff, people who voted for him, or just really citizens of Moscow to see that another type of politics, another type of living was possible, that they were able to have agency, that not everything was decided for them, that they didn't have to be ruled by ineffectual, distant, corrupt uh, elites who were interested only in their own power and enrichment, these are people who are trying to steal my country. And I'm strongly disagree with it. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a kind of speechless person right now. I'm not going to keep silent. In 2018, when he was running for president or was trying to run for president, he set out to open up all of these regional campaign offices across the country because he wanted to bring people into the political process, kind of teach them politics, not in a pedagogical or or pedantic way, but to teach them through the act of doing, uh, to create this habit, awareness among Russians across the country that they had agency if they wanted it, that there was another way of living that was possible. And that even if he didn't win these races, as I say, he was quite clear he most likely wouldn't, that that would create a lasting legacy that could maybe turn into political change later.
0: Are there any particular moments from Navalny's career that stand out? By stand out, I mean that they were kind of remarkable in the way they challenged power in Russia.
1: I think we'll forever remember his return to Russia after his poisoning. He was nearly killed by the chemical nerve agent Novichok, barely survived, evacuated in a coma to Germany, where over many weeks and months he Went through prolonged rehabilitation, finally regained, uh, regaining his health and strength, and and once he did, he expressed the commitment to return to Russia as as soon as he could, and and he did, and I think that that is a remarkable moment. I'll remember this night when his plane landed from Berlin in Moscow. So much anticipation. Dread certainly among his supporters, anticipating in the end correctly that he would be arrested. Really, upon landing, which which he was, he was arrested before he could even cross passport control. But the very idea that he would fly back to the country, back to the regime that just tried to kill him in dramatic fashion with this nerve agent, because he didn't see any other future for himself, shows um, what a remarkable person. He was, and and I think one can say that regardless of what you think of his politics, regardless of what you think of his platform, you know that one act is a very rare uh, display of human courage that we don't see so uh, very often.
0: Why did he return to Russia? Why did Navalny return to Russia?
1: I think that if he had stayed abroad, if he had stayed in safety with his family, he would have lost. The ability to, on the one hand, credibly call for his compatriots, say, to come out and protest, how could he do that from the safety of, say, Germany? I think he was wary of what had happened to others over the course of Russian history who stayed outside of Russia and tried to influence events inside Russia. There's not really a strong precedent for that. In fact, people tend to become instantly and quickly irrelevant Uh, when they're out of Russia, that you really have to be in the arena. But more than anything, I think he lived this idea that he spoke about often, which is to not be afraid. Uh, And that by demonstrating his own lack of fear, he hoped to encourage and inspire a lack of fear in others. That he's actually just an ordinary guy. I'm just Alexei. But look, I'm not afraid. And if I'm not afraid you don't have to be afraid and and going back to russia i think felt inevitable felt the only choice he could make if he was really going to live the values that were really true deep and heartfelt to him it wasn't an act um the the belief in a different and better russia was something he truly felt and the belief that Um, he didn't have to be afraid that Putin was actually someone not worth being afraid of was something he also deeply felt and wanted to live in in his actions and and demonstrate to his followers that this was, in fact, um, possible and accessible to them, too.
0: We'll be right back. Navalny's return to Russia in 2021 sparked massive protests, and the Kremlin cracked down hard. Thousands were arrested. Navalny was given a -a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence, and his foundation for fighting corruption was barred by the government. About a year later, Vladimir Putin launched Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and a month after that, Navalny's prison sentence was extended, first to an additional nine-year term then to another 19. His team began to report that he was being denied medicine and then that he was being moved between remote penal colonies known for harsh treatment.
1: We know that he had recently been moved to a maximum security prison colony in the Yamal Peninsula, above the Arctic Circle, a very cold and forbidding place, extremely difficult conditions. We also know that Navalny was repeatedly For the most minor absurd infractions, constantly being put into the so-called isolation cell, solitary confinement effectively, where conditions are even worse, uh, cold, damp, no daylight, certainly psychologically incredibly difficult. So the state was engaged in a slow-moving, but in a way in plain sight campaign to physically and psychologically destroy Navalny. Though we saw in this hearing from just a day before his death that they hadn't managed to do so, that he was in remarkably good spirits, cracking jokes, smiling, as I talked about, even managing to get a smile from the judge. But nonetheless, we we shouldn't be naive about the daily conditions he faced in this uh, prison colony above the Arctic Circle.
0: Well, what are Western leaders saying now about Navalny's death?
1: Certainly The rhetoric, I think, is rather empty. We're two years into a war in which Russia invaded Ukraine, continues to bombard it daily, destroy civilian infrastructure, occupy territory, commit war crimes. Um, The West has, of course, condemned this all along, but what have those condemnations really amounted to? I don't think there's another statement that the a Western leader can issue that will be somehow the thing that grabs the Kremlin's attention at this point. um, Statements, rhetoric words. I think uh, the time for that has passed long ago. I don't think anything, there's nothing the West can say that will in any way um, affect Putin's calculus here. We'll see if there's action in the form of sanctions or other measures from the West that would enact a real price on the Kremlin for Navalny's killing but that said, the context of Ukraine is sobering. You know What sanctions are there really left for the West to enact? You know, what more can the West really do to isolate or punish Russia that it hasn't so far?
0: Well, Putin is about to coast to another reelection. What do you think Navalny's death says about Putin's grip on Russian society at this moment?
1: That it's forever until it's no more. Um, Much like the Soviet Union, which seemed like it was going to exist for all eternity, um, even with all of its internal weaknesses and contradictions, it then collapsed in a flash. The Putin system seems robust. It seems strong. We might wish otherwise, but it's survived two years of war, of sanctions, of incredible losses for Russia On the battlefield, it's managed to reorient its economy around the war effort. Um, It's managed to turn the tide to a degree on the ground in Ukraine as we speak. But I think that Putin, actually more than at any point in the past two years, feels pretty secure. Whether he's right to do so is a separate question. But I think that he feels like he weathered, actually, the most uncertain and difficult Immediate post-invasion period when things didn't go according to plan for Russia or for for Putin, um, we need to remember that for that that Putin is is paranoid about challenges to his political rule beyond what we, we might call rational. He's he's opposed to even the specter to even the idea of an alternative. That alternative doesn't have to be credible. It doesn't have to pose a real, genuine, urgent threat. Uh, to his rule, as frankly, I'm not sure Navalny did even at his heyday. I don't think that Navalny was really poised to defeat Putin necessarily at the ballot box. But it was more the idea that Navalny represented—the idea of an alternative, the idea of freedom of choice, the idea that Russian citizens might have some agency over their own political futures. All of that was so deeply threatening to Putin. While well, that we saw uh, how he chose. Uh, to respond to that threat. Hmm.
0: Do you think Navalny succeeded at shifting Russians' view of Putin at all?
1: I think that Navalny succeeded indeed of showing Russians, not all, I wouldn't know exactly how to measure it, but a sizable number that they can challenge in whatever way. It doesn't mean marching headlong against the Kremlin and finding yourself in prison but that Putin and the entire ruling edifice that they're not inevitable or immutable that they can be challenged they can be made fun of and that one can do that without fear with dignity with belief in one's own agency and that that is a legacy that I hope will live on Russians deserve to think of themselves as as people who have control over their own political and personal destinies.
0: Thank you, Joshua Yaffa, for coming on What Next?
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Joshua Yaffa is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and the author of Between Two Fires. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next?, The best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.